Now that said, if any of the three of us were hooking up on screen, it would be super hot and like genuine. Like we'd be able to pull it off, right? Of course. I mean, it depends <laughs> on who I'm paired with. <laughs> with each other, I'm saying. Oh, with each. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Listen, the chemistry between the three of us is palpable. It, the tension is there. You can cut it with a knife. We've been will they, won't they for years. Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Rabbit, rabbits. Start of a new month. Halloween is over. Though we're recording on Halloween Eve, Eve, and in the morning. How will the panel fare with an 11 a.m. <laughs> Eastern recording? I don't know. We're going to find out. That's true. <laughs> I had a uh, Halloween shindig here over the weekend on Saturday night. And because I'm social now, I don't know if you guys have heard, I'm social now. And I know, yeah, no, you you managed to find a way to slip that into every conversation. <laughs> Please, if I'm getting insufferable, let me know. Just I'm just so proud of myself for touching grass. <laughs> We're proud of you too, y'all. I made the biggest amateur mistakes at the party. I was drinking on an empty stomach, and I was mixing alcohol. So by the time Everybody had left for that night, which was like around 1 a.m. I go to bed and I realize, uh oh, oh boy, I need to throw up. And I threw up oh, for wow. oh probably God. the first time in like five, six years. I had to throw up due to alcohol. Rookie move, Andrew. Yeah. Rookie move. It's like he's coming back to I, being I, social and now he forgot all the rules. <laughs> Forgot all the rules. Mixing alcohol. We had these mystery shots covered in in like little ghost outfits. So like you pull one up and you take off the ghost costume and there it is. So I was mixing margaritas with beer and uh, the vodka shot and probably something else. I, I kind of forgot the last hour. Um, but yeah, that was a lot for me. So, oh, and then all of yesterday I was recovering. Like I was just freaking dead to the world <laughs> on Sunday. But you know what? There was one good thing that came of it. I could at least, as I was hurling, I was like, well, here's a show story. I've got something for the show. There you go. I mean, we do it all for the show, right? Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, I wanted to talk about this new, believe it or not, the Hunger Games is still around, and it was announced in the last week that there's going to be a Hunger Games stage play over in London, and ahead of the spinoff movie hitting theaters, we thought we'd revisit this franchise and maybe some other pop culture stage adaptations. So this Hunger Games stage play will only be an adaptation of the first book. Notably, it won't be a continuation of the story. Something like, you know, maybe you would have expected from The Cursed Child or maybe you would have expected a prequel. But no, just a straight adaptation of book one. There have been mixed results for pop culture stage adaptations over the years. I admit I'm not the biggest um, theater junkie, but SpongeBob the Musical, on paper, that sounds ridiculous. But that, that actually was a hit. It won a Tony, has been on numerous tours. Pat saw it. He loved it when it was uh, testing in Chicago. 
One total flop was Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And at the time, that was the most expensive Broadway production. There were actually major safety and story issues. Bono and the Edge of U2 wrote the music for the show. So that caught my eye, being a U2 super fan. And I, I listened to the the soundtrack. But it only ran three years, and it closed at, at a massive financial loss. I think, Laura, you were kind of following this one a little bit, being a, a comic bit. girly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it, it's interesting that the way they describe the events leading up to the closure is major safety issues. Um, because imagine it's Spider-Man. So you had your uh, principal cast swinging around the theater on strings. And that's the safety issue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being referred to. Uh, too many actors took a tumble <laughs> when they were swinging around. So. And when you're going into creating a show around Spider Man, you would think, well, okay, people will be s- swinging around. So right. we got to make sure that part works, right? Like, not so much. Now, I don't know if we should call this next one a flop, but in some ways it is. Mm. The Cursed Child, which I, me- mm. I mentioned a few minutes ago. That was a continuation of the story, <laughs> for worse. I think it's fair to say at this point. It was a flop for the fandom, I think. Mm-hmm. I think critically, it was pretty well received, yeah. wasn't it? So Pam and I have both seen it. Mm-hmm. When you see it, it's a stunner, right, Pam? Yeah, but I will say, like, backing up a little bit to the idea of this kind of being a flop, what I will say was a flop was the the two part play because by the time I saw it, I had, I saw it condensed down to one part and they really didn't need two parts. Like they hardly cut anything out. And I made sure to reread cursed child before I went to see it. It, They hardly cut anything, which means that it didn't have to be that long to begin with. So that's so interesting. So like the key story beats, they, All were there. They cut out like a lot of Hagrid towards the end. Do you remember like Hagrid comes back and mm-hmm. yeah, so they cut stuff like that. And then also they just like sped up the dialogue. It was like being in a Gilmore Girls episode. <laughs> like they were talking so okay. fast to cram it all in there. But which you're doing a rewatch of right now. Yeah, me and you Pat and Pat are... have this cute little rewatch thing going on. Yeah, I've been slacking because we've been so busy on this show. But yeah, we've been rewatching Gilmore Girls because that's what you do in the fall. Oh, it really is a a feel good fall show. Mm -hmm. I heard they also made Cursed Child a little gayer, actually, in this merging. Like they started leaning into the Albus Scorpius possible love interest feelings for one another thing. Because the first time and everybody's heard me speak about this before, but you see this show and you really think they're going that way. And then by the end of the play, they know homo it by putting Scorpius with Rose or like Rose expresses an interest in Scorpius and Scorpius is all flustered. So, um, you know, they made an improvement with the merge. Did you two hear it's going to start going on tour, by the way, in like 2024? I did. Well, I I guess like, oh, no, not again. They really didn't have it open very many places, right? It was just. No, yeah, it's not been a tour. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, like. A little too late. I think that they should have capitalized on that way earlier than they did. So, like, it'll be interesting to see if the tour does well. I feel like it will. I mean, Harry Potter is still so huge. Like it or not, it really is huge. And if you hear that this show is coming to your town that within an hour drive, I think you're going. 
typical families, yeah. they are going to this. 100%. And to your point, like the show is crazy. There is some stuff that they did on that stage that like, I don't want to know how they did it. I still don't understand how they did it. And it's great. Like, that's what you want for a show that mm-hmm. is supposed to be based around magic. You know, you want that magic in the theater. So well, see, now I wonder, will some of those bigger stage elements carry over to the tour? Because I imagine most of those things were built specifically for the venues they've been hosted in. I know the Lyric Theater and the, the London one, it was very expensive to get those theaters ready for the show. But it's Harry Potter, so no expense will be spared. Will they do that on tour or will they reimagine, let's say, some things? I bet they will reimagine some things. Um but I guess we'll see. I think I think it's next year or 2025 no, okay. it's going to start. We don't know where where it's going to go, but that'll be interesting for sure. I mean, you know, I have been trying to boycott uh, new Harry Potter purchases because I don't like giving my money to J.K. Rowling. But I haven't seen this new merged stage play. And I would like to because I've only seen the two parts. And um, I mean, that's another reason. Like you said, Pam, that's another reason it was a flop. It was it was too much for people. Yeah. Th- this two part thing. That's a big commitment. It is. And it was hard to get tickets in one day. Like and if you live like to your point of being an hour away, imagine having to watch a two part play. You can only get um, tickets for consecutive nights. So then that's you either have to like rent a hotel room or you need to drive, commit to driving an hour each day. Right. And we're talking very expensive New York or London. You have to travel mm-hmm. and to stay the night at. Yeah, that was going to be my point. You know, most people who were going to see this in New York or London were traveling in for maybe a week or so, maybe less. So imagine the time crunch that it presents to have to get these tickets as close as you can together mm-hmm. when you're on a short trip. It's just not a great experience, a theater going experience, in my opinion. No. Yeah. So moving along here, other pop culture musicals. This one's kind of interesting. Mean Girls, the musical, which is based on the movie, which is based on the book. The musical's book was written by Tina Fey. This musical is actually set to be turned into a movie. So it's going like full freaking circle. This is wild (laughs) to me. Mean Girls, the book, the movie. The musical, the movie. <laughs> it's it's giving High School Musical the musical the yes, series. It really is. It really, really is. Speaking of full circle, Wicked set to be turned into a two part movie, um, and now this musical, uh, most people probably will know this. Well, it was based on the 1995 novel Wicked: The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. In turn, based on, of course, The Wizard of Oz and the 1939 movie adaptation. Um, There's a lot of anticipation behind this one because Wicked, the movie, has Ariana Grande, um, Ethan Slater, who actually starred in SpongeBob, Cynthia Erivo playing uh, the Wicked Witch of the West. Erivo. Erivo, thank you. So pretty uh, Bowen Yang, I see, is in it. Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) I hadn't looked at this cast before. This movie... it does look I don't good. know if you remember, Andrew. This movie has been greenlit for longer than it's been in production. Like, yes. over 10 years it's taken them to get this to a point where it's actually going to hit theaters. It's been cast and recast, lo- gone through multiple hands in terms of directors. And so, I, but then also Wicked is now an iconic Broadway musical. I mean, it's still running. You can still go see Wicked on Broadway. So I I think that this is like 
one of those um, instances where, yeah, to, to your point about all of these like spinoffs and stuff that it'll do well because people have a good touchstone for what Wicked is and what they're buying in for. Same can't be said for Cats, for example. Cats, great musical. <laughs> The movie, like people, but a great musical, like with like long in terms of like longevity, but most people don't know what the fuck Cats is about. So then they go see the movie and they're like, oh, it's literally about like <laughs> cats. And then one of them dies. <laughs> That's a thing. <laughs> Some of them are horny. I have seen, a cat dies. I haven't seen cats. I don't know anything about cats. Spoilers. A cat dies. What the fuck? So I have to say, I'm still waiting for the butthole cut of cats. Have you guys <laughs> oh heard of that? Oh my God, I forgot about that. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. please tell. I mean, think Andrew about Laura. it. When you look at those, <laughs> when you look at those cats, those humanoid cats, they don't have buttholes. They have perfectly sculptured cheeks, of course. But think about a cat. Cats have buttholes. <laughs> so I think somebody went in and... Uh, did some some funny work to give all the cats buttholes. I don't think that was a, uh, I don't think that was an official, uh, cut of the movie. But Release somebody the did butt it. Cut. The butt cut. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Pam, getting back to Wicked for a second. The every time there was a story around the Wicked movie on Hypeable, it was one of those stories where, uh, visitors. Our social media followers lost their shit. Remember that? Mm-hmm. That was just one of those types of stories we would do. And oh my God, did that bring in traffic because people have been pumped. And yeah, John M. Chu is directing Wicked. Yeah. Crazy Rich Asians. That's his other movie, big one. Mm-hmm. So I think that was pretty exciting for people to hear he would be mm-hmm. helming it. So those are some other ones. Getting back to the Hunger Games, it is interesting to see. It almost feels like Hunger Games is trying to follow the Harry Potter playbook, but it's such a different story. And in my opinion, it's just one of those fandoms like Twilight that really just dipped off at the end. It's like there wasn't that staying power that Harry Potter and Star Wars and Star Trek have. Even I guess you could extend that uh, to Marvel. But There was a Hunger Games land in a theme park called Lionsgate Entertainment World. They also have Twilight and Divergent attractions over there, by the way. So this is this is this is in China where there's a 3D simulation ride around the Hunger Games and also PETA's Bakery, which I like a lot. I think that's cool. But you go to um, YouTube and you try to find video. First of all, there's not much video of these attractions. And it just kind of looks sad. It's just not like the Wizarding World or Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theming that you see. So there's that. There's also a Hunger Games traveling exhibition. Again, just like the Harry Potter playbook. um, Including what seems to be a permanent installation in Vegas. I keep seeing signs for it here. And and, and I looked up. There's tickets. Uh, We talked a few weeks ago about the Twilight or sorry the Titanic exhibition here in Vegas and how you can get married there. Unfortunately, it does not look like you can get married in the Hunger Games exhibition. Tough oh, luck, Andrew. Too <laughs> bad. I definitely dream about getting married in a dystopian nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but think of the costumes at the Capitol. You could get married in the Capitol. Oh man, it would be like a like a royal wedding with all of those crazy hats. <laughs> yeah, Effie could design your wedding. It'd be super cool, I think. So now there's the stage play. Does the Hunger Games have staying power to you two? And there's also this spinoff movie coming up next month. That's an important one as well. The Ballad of Songbird and Snakes. 
I think that as far as dystopian novels go, it has more staying power than a lot of the other ones that were really popping off around this time. I think that the issue with Hunger Games lies in the fact that they didn't need to split the movie into two parts. Everybody wanted to capitalize on splitting the last book because that's what Harry Potter did. But I feel like what that ended up doing is causing fatigue, even amongst diehard fans, because we didn't need that. It's and like, I guess you could argue that Harry Potter, Harry Potter didn't need it either, but they kind of did. You know, I don't think Twilight needed two parts for the last book. I don't think that the Hunger Games did either. The Hunger Games arguably did it better, but I just feel like by the time those came out, we were just already um, tired of of this hopeless feeling that comes along with enjoying these dystopian books. I think also to, and this might be a little bit of a hot take because I don't want to sit here and say that um, these dystopian books weren't that deep because that's not what I mean. But when I say that, um, that a story needs to have a certain level of depth to be able to be successfully split into two movies... Um, it has to be, there has to be a lot more to it. And I felt like Hunger Games was a very linear story that you could kind of guess the outcome of (laughs) in a way. So I don't know that there was just enough substance to that story to really justify turning it into two movies. And I don't say that as a knock against the franchise. I really enjoyed the Hunger Games. Um, but I think that you do the story a disservice when you're trying to draw it out for the sake of capitalism, as opposed to just telling the story as it was intended to be told and doing it justice. So Hunger Games yeah. fans may not agree with me, but well, I, that's fine. Yeah. I, I think people were burnt out on dystopians by the time the Hunger Games movie adaptations came along. We had that part one, part two fatigue. Harry Potter had done it. Twilight had done it. It seemed to be like the sexy new trend. It was like Disney's reimaginings. It's like everybody's trying to make this work. The Hunger Games part two, sorry, Mockingjay part two did not do as well at the box office as part one. And partly I think that's because part one, it ended on a cliffhanger, but it was just sort of depressing. It, it just like, and it wasn't that great. And it didn't feel like it needed to be split into two. And it's funny. The director of Catching Fire, Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2, and now The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Francis Lawrence, he said the other day he totally regrets, that's a quote, totally regrets splitting Mockingjay into two movies and making people wait a year to see Part 2. Because His, his regret seems to be around the wait in particular, so... Because he was also saying how with a TV show, you ended on a cliffhanger, but people only have to wait a week unless it's the season finale. Of course, they only have to wait right. a week to the next episode with a with a movie a year for this. Yeah. When you already know how it's going to end, by the way, even Ave- Avengers, I don't think Endgame. I don't think it was a full year before we got Endgame. I think that mm, was it? it. It was about a year. It wasn't about a year. Well, I think yeah. like regardless of that, I think that you're right, Andrew. Like if they had like. Because they filmed them back to back. So if they had released it even six months after, maybe the it would have done better. Well, and actually, to your point, Pam, Deathly Hallows Part 1 came out November 2010 and Part 2 came out July 2011. So that was about, you know, what, six, seven months 
There's less than a year. Maybe that's what yeah. I was thinking of. And yeah. so maybe that's a good way to do it. And I think everybody knew. Uh, I mean, obviously, the the story is incredible there. So people wanted to see how that one ended. Deathly Hallows Part 2 made more than Part 1. Breaking Dawn Part 2 made more than Breaking Dawn Part 1. Hunger Games was the only one that wasn't able to achieve that with Part 2. And then remember, Lionsgate wanted to split Divergent, the final Divergent book, oh Allegiant, into two. They released Allegiant Part 1 and bombed. They didn't film Parts 1 and 2 back to back, which was... Uh, kind of a rookie mistake because that's how the other movies had done it to save money and then part two never happened and they should have never done that because people like you can go online and gauge people's interests so many people were mad about the allegiant book so they should have known that people wouldn't be as interested in going to see a movie adaptation so like they had one shot to get people in seats and they would have done better by just putting it all in one but again to like to laura's point there's a there's a lack of substance. And that's, that doesn't mean that there's no substance to the books. Right. It's just that that when you're translating a story onto any screen, you don't always need to put every single page of that book onto the screen. There's things that you can cut for time and you can still tell a satisfying story that is true to the source material without it needing to be four hours long. And that's like the disconnect here, right? Is that some people don't realize that. So let's talk about The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. The book came out in 2020, I believe, which was a great year, by the way, for, uh, well, I mean, we all know 2020 was hell. But <laughs> hold on, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> let me let me make sure I'm getting this right. I should have looked this up in advance. Okay. The book came out, yes. 2020. Didn't Midnight Sun also come out in 2020? The book? Yeah. Yes, it did. Yeah. So this is what I mean by it was a good year for like YA spinoffs and like stuff we've been kind of yearning for. I mean, especially when it came to Midnight Sun. Um, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is coming out November 17th. Did you two read this book? I did read it. I have not read it yet, but I'm actually planning on reading it before I see the movie. Okay. Pam, did you like it? No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I... Laura. <laughs> no, I mean, to Maybe. be honest, that's kind of what I anticipate Yeah. going in. Girl, you you got books to read. You got Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. You got Fourth Wing. Yeah. Like, let, let's go. I let's know. Roll. I know. I'm working on it, man. Don't don't read Ballad. Save yourself the effort. <laughs> Are you sure? I I'm pretty positive. Okay. Audio, audiobook it on like 1.5 speed. There we go. (laughs) So I started reading it, switched to the audiobook because Pat and I were doing like a road trip. So I was like, this will be an easier way to knock it out. We never finished it. And and now I'm excited about the movie just so I can see how it ends. I am looking forward to the movie. The trailers look good. It is aesthetically reminding me heavily of The Hunger Games. And of course it is. But it's just I really did like those first couple movies. So I'm looking forward to getting back into that kind of world. And seeing how this movie ends. Interestingly, and I just learned this this morning, Battle of Songbirds and Snakes is the longest movie in the Hunger Games film series. Two hours, 36 minutes. It's also long as fuck in book form. (laughs) It's really long. I don't know if you remember this from reading, Andrew, but like the pacing is so slow. It is. In the book. And that book is longer than like any of the other books in the trilogy. 
So does that scare you then that this movie is long and so was the book? Uh, I no, because I, I I think that like two and a half hours is pretty standard for anything that kind of falls in the realm of science fiction or fantasy, which this franchise especially. Does. Yeah. So it's like I, I that the runtime doesn't scare me. But um and and also like they always like change things and add things. So I'm hoping that the story is like more compelling on screen. My my biggest yeah. issue is that like with the ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is that it, it asks us to sympathize with um Snow and I have no sympathy for him at all. Like, even though Suzanne Collins makes a case as to why he is the way he is, it's just like, yeah, but like these people are all awful anyway. Like, regardless of what they do in the future. But what about the fact that he's hot in this movie? Does that not sway you anymore? I don't think he's that hot. Whoa. Sorry. Tom Blitz. Breaking news. (laughs) Not for me. Uh, Yeah, actually, I sort of. uh, Well, look, he's hotter than Donald Sutherland oh, or maybe maybe Donald Sutherland is, is a daddy to you I don't know he's, I'm not joking. he's not a daddy but I mean no shade to anyone who thinks that he's a daddy <laughs> murder daddy villain daddy murder Love daddy <laughs> you know what I think it is I think it's really tapping into that I can save him complex um, you see this anytime there's a villain origin story a certain uh niche of people come out and create tons of social media content, I think mostly that is tongue in cheek, saying, oh, I can save him. I could be (laughs) I could be the one to make a difference. Yeah. So I think they're playing into that a little bit. And we are seeing Mm -hmm. a resurgence in the rise of the morally gray character, too. That kind of yep. never really goes away, yeah. but to that point, Laura, that that's a really popular trope for a leading man right now. I mean, think people were doing that with the Dahmer mm-hmm. show that came out last year. I could say because him. people think Jeez. people think Evan Peters is daddy, <laughs> which like fair, but also maybe eating not. people. Yeah, maybe not when we're talking about Dahmer, guys. Eat me, daddy. <laughs> eat me, daddy. Eat me out, baby. <laughs> eat me out. Just don't eat me. Oh man. <laughs> Thing things that Andrew says on a Saturday night for 200, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I'll read the synopsis of this spinoff real quick, just to get everybody on the same page. Years before he would become the tyrannical president of Panem, 18-year-old Coriolana Snow is the last hope for his fading lineage, a once-proud family that has fallen from grace in a post-war capital. With the 10th annual Hunger Games fast approaching, the young Snow is alarmed when he is assigned to mentor Lucy Gray Bard, the female tribute from an impoverished District 12. But after Lucy Gray commands all of Pan Nam's attention by defiantly singing during the reaping ceremony, Snow thinks he might be able to turn the odds in their favor. Uniting their instincts for showmanship and newfound political savvy, Snow and Lucy Gray's race against time to survive will ultimately reveal who is a songbird and who is a snake. So, kind of similar beats to the actual Hunger Games with... Lucy Gray having this defiant moment uh, during the reaping ceremony. That volunteer is tribute. It's giving Katniss. <laughs> we'll probably review it in November. By the way, speaking of runtimes, I mentioned this one's two hours, 36 minutes. And uh, I, I just, I'm forever wondering why 
if 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 studios are struggling to get people to go into theaters, if they want to save money, why not make a shorter damn movie? Seriously, like two hours. Get it done in I two mean, hours. You'll probably save several million. Or bring back the intermission. Did you hear what happened? Yes, what I was happened? just going to say that. So Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower, Killers of the Flower Moon is out in theaters and some theaters are getting their asses handed to them for daring to put an intermission halfway through because that's not the vision that Scorsese had for the movie, which is so dumb. It's like, I get it, but also it's, I, I think that like if it gets more butts and seats, isn't that, shouldn't that be your priority? Wow. Honestly, that kind of blew my mind because to be honest, I thought the take here was going to be Scorsese is so up his own asshole that he thought his movie deserved an intermission, but it was actually the opposite of that. It was still up his own asshole. My movie, but <laughs> yeah, in a different way, the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. This is not my vision. <laughs> that movie is three hours, 26 minutes. No, fuck that. But the reviews are really good. So if I don't see this in theaters, I'll, prob- I'll probably watch it at home. It's an Apple TV. I was I was I was poking around an Apple TV plus to see when it was going to come out. It just says coming soon. It's like they don't want you to know when it's coming out so that you'll go see it in theaters. Right. And I yeah. think they have to put it in theaters to uh, make it eligible for the Oscars. Yes. Well, I am going to watch that at home and I'm going to give myself my own damn intermission. So good. see, that's the thing. It's like, you know, Scorsese and and all these other Hollywood bigwigs know that people watch it at home and pause it at home if it's that long. So what's the harm in a theater offering an intermission? I mean, I guess you probably I don't know. That doesn't seem like they should be allowed to, but I also get why they're doing that. By the way, speaking of runtimes, I saw people celebrating this on Twitter the other day. The Marvels, the upcoming Marvel movie, hits theaters in November as well. One hour, 45 minutes. Wow. And that's a Marvel movie. That is short for Marvel. We like that, Kevin Feige. Honestly, that's a movie that I would have I wouldn't have minded. Like if they had said, oh, it's it's 215. Mm hmm. Because mm-hmm. I'm genuinely excited for that. Yeah. Well, and if you've been following those three stories that are going to be represented in the Marvels, there is a lot there and they really could expand on it. I'm also kind of worried about that movie. I don't know if y'all have been paying attention to the marketing for it, but the marketing feels non-existent. And whereas initially trailers were highlighting the fact that this was a trio coming together it feels like in recent weeks, they've really been honing in on Captain Marvel and placing less focus on um, Monica and um, Kamala, who are the the two others that make the trio. So I don't know what's going yeah. on. I feel like when movies make a last minute pivot in their marketing strategy, that's usually not a good sign. I. Mm-hmm. To, to that point, and maybe this will ease your concerns and other people's concerns. I feel like maybe they're honing in on um, on Captain Marvel because she's more recognizable as a face of the franchise, and Brie Larson is more recognizable as an actress because right now they can't do any promo press with the actors. That's true. As a result of the strike, and that really sucks. Because like, imagine how fun that press junket would have been to watch play out. 
So I feel yeah, like their only bargaining chip at this point is just to like cut a trailer together that reminds people of why they maybe want to go see it in the first place. Like here's this badass superhero right. that went toe to toe with Thanos and like won. Yeah, that's true. I just wonder if the original runtime was intended to be so short. Ooh, yeah, that's true. Or if a lot of stuff hit the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. Well, we will revisit Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and maybe uh, the Marvels coming up in November. So a couple of good movies to look forward to that aren't three and a half hours long. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and then talk about sex on screen and teens being less interested. We'll be right back. I wanted to talk about this new study that's coming out of UCLA because I thought the findings were particularly interesting. Apparently, teens are actually hoping to see less sex depicted on screen, which is maybe not something that we would have ever thought we would be hearing from teens or young people in general. So a little bit of background on this study, just so that we can kind of get on the same page as far as like the details go. So the study is called the Teens and Screens Study, and it was conducted out of the University Center for Scholars and Storytellers. And as part of this survey, they um, talked to a total of 1,500 young people between the ages of 10 to 24 but only participants aged 13 to 24 were asked about uh, questions relating to sex and romance. So that's something to keep in mind here. It's still a pretty, um, you know, girthy age range, though, honestly. So as far as the findings go, 50 <laughs> girthy. girthy and we're talking about <laughs> sex. Sorry. 51.5% of teens wanted to see more content depicting friendships and platonic relationships. So in place of sex, you know, emphasizing that. Um, 44.3% felt like romance and media is overused. Uh, 39% want to see more aromantic and or asexual characters on screen. And then the last statistic from this survey I have here is that 47.5% of adolescents said that sex isn't needed for the plot of most TV shows and movies. I wanted to know if you all were surprised overall by these results. I guess a little bit because you would think teens are a little hornier mm -hmm. coming into their own. And curious. But what I kind of find, and I'm not in this uh, girthy age range <laughs> that you mentioned, but uh, what I find is that the sex stuff tends to be pointless. And like for me, that's like a moment to check my phone. I don't think generally they add much to a show or a movie. You know, I think it also has to do with the chemistry of the actors on screen. Something that I get tired of um, when watching any kind of film, TV um, that has a lot of sex depicted in it is that oftentimes it feels like the actors have no chemistry and these characters are being thrown together just for the sake of sex. And it really doesn't do anything to add to or advance the story. So maybe that is the heart of what these teens are communicating is that it just doesn't feel like in general, sex depictions contribute much of anything to the story. Now, that said, if any of the three of us were hooking up on screen, it would be super hot and like genuine. Like we'd be able to pull it off. Right. Of course. I, I okay. mean, <laughs> sure. 
I mean, it depends on who I'm paired with. <laughs> well, I mean, no, with each other, I'm saying. Oh, with each. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Listen, the chemistry between the three of us is palpable. Um, it, the tension is there. You can cut it with a knife. Um, <laughs> We've been will they, will they That is already well years. established. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to uh, the question here, to me, this was mostly surprising because I feel like we've seen a renaissance in terms of like the rise in popularity of romance novels again. That's such a huge part of what is making the publishing industry tick right now. And so it's interesting to me that that then does not correlate into um, what young people are wanting to see more of on screen or maybe wanting to see in this case, wanting to see less of, but at the same time to Andrew's point, if it kind of goes back to what this survey was saying, which is that um, the uh, romance in media is overused or um, is it really um, being done in a in a way that makes it feel satisfying? Then I can see why, you know, teens are kind of just like tired of seeing it. Yeah. Is it moving the story forward? Yeah. yeah. Or like. You know, something like a Game of Thrones, sex is just used as a shock factor, really. There's um, mm-hmm. very few romantic arcs that really kind of feel like there was like a buildup. Like the only one I can think of is um, is like Jon Snow and like Egret, you know, because like they were like going at each other's throats for episodes at a time, you yeah. know. And so then or it's like-, like when they finally got together, it was like, okay, like that makes sense, right? Because they were building on the tension. Yeah. Or like Jamie and Brian. Jamie and Brian. There was quite a bit of build up yeah. with the two of them. But then that ended up being so disappointing. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right, Pam. I think a lot of it has to do with the build up. And just because books are longer form it's easier to communicate that buildup in book form than it probably is mm-hmm. on the silver screen. And I guess when you're reading it, it's easier to kind of kind of skim through. So maybe that's why it doesn't bother people as much in romance. And when you're reading a book, it's a very personal, private experience, usually, unless it's like an audiobook and you're listening with others. So maybe people are just more comfortable like consuming that in their own space. Yeah. In their own world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're more comfortable getting steamy in the right. privacy of their own home. You can, especially when you're reading, you can kind of project your own interpretation onto the text and imagine what turns you on. Whereas if you're watching something on screen, you're getting somebody else's interpretation of those events. Oh, that's a good point, too. The other thing that I will say here, and I I don't know what the research methods um, used for this study were, but I will say anything that um, banks off of self-reported data is going to have like a a margin of error. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they communicated that in these findings, but I would just say if you're asking a bunch of teenagers whether or not they want to see more sex on screen you may not be getting honest answers from all of them. that's a good point <laughs> so you you think they would want to actually want more they're just not being honest because it comes off strange yeah. or well i mean think about it this way like if as a teenager andrew you were pulled into a study and you were asked directly do you watch porn <clears throat> 
what would your default answer be? <laughs> no, of course not. <clears throat> <clears throat> right. So that that's what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that like everyone here did that, but I think there's probably some margin of error here for people who did, mm-hmm. who were too embarrassed to give their real answer. And Mr. Sims, did you try to steal your parents' credit card to access the porn? <laughs> no, no. Oh, my gosh. What? I am shocked and appalled that you would even suggest it. How could you suggest such a thing? Yeah, I see what you're saying, Laura. Well, Laura, I'm glad you brought up Teenage Andrew because <laughs> another thing that I, I wanted to have us explore here is kind of just thinking back to when we were growing up. It kind of feels like it was more commonplace for a lot of stuff to be hypersexualized in the media or even like teen idols. A lot of our teen idols were hypersexualized. Britney Spears is a really good example of this. So um, do we feel like we were exposed to sex in the media earlier than we should have been as a result of this? Like whether that came from shows or movies or or books? Yeah. One 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 like core memory for me is I remember watching it must have been like the MTV VMAs with my family for whatever reason. And the Backstreet Boys were performing larger than life live. And I remember there's that one line, am I sexual? And (laughs) one of the Backstreet Boys, I kind of like lifts their shirt a little bit to show their stomach, you know, in like a sexy, you can imagine it, sexy fashion. And I still remember my sister being like, what's sexual mean? I think my mom or dad was just like, oh, that means they're hot, but like temperature hot. And that's why he was lifting his shirt to cool off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice um, save. Nice yeah. save. <laughs> so there's moments like that where I think, yes. And and definitely I like your Britney example as well. It does kind of feel like there was some shock factor, especially during award shows when we were younger. Um, there was some shock factor at play. I'm thinking about like... The infamous uh, Britney Spears Madonna kiss. Do you guys remember that? How mm-hmm. and how shocking it was. I mean, it reverberated. Oh yeah. Um, people couldn't stop talking about it, or even just thinking about um, the, the snake, the, Britney and the snake, Britney and the snake, or like the the Super Bowl halftime show with Justin Timberlake and yep. um, Janet she, Jackson. Janet Blake. Jackson. Janet Jackson. Thank you. I was like, it's a Jackson. Um, but yeah, think about all of that and then compare that to what we see now. Mm-hmm. Feels pretty different. Yeah, well, because I mean, over the years too, like obviously Janet Jackson was for like at the time and Justin, well, maybe not not Justin, of course, uh canceled right because of what happened. Right. Remember how and I was like, oh my gosh, can't believe it. And so remember after that, the Super Bowl started going to classic rock acts for the halftime show they didn't want to get into trouble anymore well, with these younger pop stars the the, the, the rights because it used to be the mtv has halftime show and then it was now it was really? yeah it was the pepsi mtv was oh. like producing the halftime show that's why you had all these young yeah. acts and then justin ruined it for mtv and so then it was right. the pepsi halftime show a little bit more wholesome and now apple has is is producing it so now we're at apple music right but it's gone back to younger acts but really that moment i remember bruce the who there was some other paul mccartney maybe Mm -hmm. um they they shifted to the older stars who weren't going to accidentally show a booby to your point laura i think 
the media has gotten a little more afraid to sexualize moments because, of course, we also know in this Fox News extreme right wing world, all the outrage that can occur over the stupidest little thing today. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely kind of a it's a very narrow line to walk between creating more sexually charged content that is actually meaningful and good and somehow propels the story onward, or at the very least is actually perceived as steamy by the audience Mm -hmm. without also getting canceled Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the people who don't like it. Look at the next five years after Janet Jackson and Justin, Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, Prince, Tom Petty, Bruce, the who six (laughs) years. It took them six years before they started switching younger. After that was the black eyed peas, then Madonna then Beyonce, so they started shifting after that. But really, it's been all these younger artists <laughs> after that six-year old person run. Oh, my God. I love that they thought <laughs> six years was enough to like make us forget about Janet Jackson's boob. <laughs> to recover from that fucking split second. Jesus. Oh, man. Well, and for those six years, they knew that they were going to be safe. There were not going to be any loose titties on that stage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, to the point of like bringing us back to the present day here, one thing that is happening behind the scenes that I wanted to point out really quick is that you're starting to see intimacy coordinators be used more often on sets for uh, not just sex scenes, but also just romance scenes in general. So for anyone who doesn't know, intimacy coordinators are basically there to champion for actors and actresses who have to do these scenes. So if anyone's not comfortable with something, then they'll negotiate with the director, the screenwriters um, so that they can, you know, work around the comfort level of everybody involved. And I think that that's really great. Obviously, like there's more work to be done, but it's a good first step. And I wanted to ask you all if you've seen um, or noticed any kind of shift in the nature of some of these types of scenes as a result, because one place that I've noticed a big shift is um, in Outlander specifically. Outlander just barely got themselves an intimacy coordinator. And there's a huge change in how they do sex scenes on that show now versus when the show first came out. And that's like a really like that's that's considered to be like a pretty sexy series. What would you say are some of the biggest differences you notice, Pan? There's less uh, nudity. There's more use of like cloth. And it just kind of feels like there's uh, there's more of an emphasis in trying to make the moment feel more intimate and less like, oh, like, look, they're having sex, you know? So there's like less wide shots and more like close-ups. It doesn't necessarily always have to be like close-ups of faces either. Sometimes it's like close-ups of limbs or like close-ups of hands. Um, Another, I don't know if they use an intimacy coordinator, but another good good example along the same lines too is like um, the sex scenes in Red, White, and Royal Blue, I feel like did this too, is that they focused less on like the act itself and more on like the facial expressions and like the smaller touches and stuff like that. So that's proof that you can still make steamy content without having to have it be so graphic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say in general, I feel like full frontal nudity is definitely not as commonplace as it once was. 
Yeah. Even in shows, I mean, I'm thinking about like the Game of Thrones universe and not saying that there isn't still some full frontal nudity in those shows because there definitely is. But even comparing early seasons of Game of Thrones to some of the later seasons, I felt like you saw less of that and things were a little more... um, Things were left up to a little more mystery and things were shot very strategically to kind of, I think, I feel like leave you wanting more as opposed to getting that full shot up front. I think that that was a battle that Amelia Clark had to fight over the course of filming that show because in early seasons she was naked all the time. Um, but when she got a certain level of, I think, bargaining power because of her her weight that she kind of carried with that show, she was able to call the shots and do a lot less nudity. I also wonder if it has to do with trying to reach as broad an audience as possible in this age of like so much content people could be watching television viewership numbers overall are down. They're just like a fraction of what they used to be um, in terms of like per show. I just wonder if it's like, well, let's play it safer to try and appeal to a wider audience. I think about like, Pam, you said Red, White and Royal Blue. That's a show that's a movie adaptation where I think a lot of people would have preferred seeing more nudity in that. But if you're trying to reach a broader audience, maybe it has to do with who's hosting them, too. I mean, this is an Amazon Prime movie. Maybe Amazon had something to say about it. They just want to avoid rocking the boat and trying to nab as many viewers as possible because it's hard enough getting people to watch anything these days. Well, and I guess they could also be thinking about reaching as many markets as they can because we know some markets can be more restrictive. Overseas, yeah. Of Yeah, mm-hmm. overseas of, of what can be shown. So there's that to keep in mind. Not that Disney is uh, showing a whole lot of nudity um, in their works, but we've d- definitely seen Disney um, make some shifts around their marketing and how much they might lean into a certain theme or even mm-hmm. seen examples of Disney removing certain cuts of things for their Chinese market. Yep. Yep. Favorite sex scenes. Go. <laughs> favorite sex scenes. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I feel like the the iconic one, probably like the first one I ever saw was the Titanic one. Like I had no yeah, idea I what was going on. But... <laughs> you liked it. <laughs> Well, no, it was just like, what's the hand? What's going on with the hand? <laughs> like, why are they all wet? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also very interesting thinking about that from an adult point of view mm-hmm. because now that you know we have more of an understanding of that act, I'm thinking about the logistics of being in that tiny ass car, backseat of the car, the cleanup. That's how true. do they handle you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, she did have a lot of layers up. in her dress, so you know, maybe that helped out. Maybe it was all absorbent. That's <laughs> <laughs> why so you always carry towels in your car. Right. I carry them in my car just to dry my car after a wash, but maybe uh-huh. didn't realize <laughs> <laughs> something's wet on your car, Andrew. <laughs> as a uh teen i was introduced to queers folk and those were all my favorite sex scenes in that tv show they did it right they leaned into the sex in that show that was my first introduction to the gay world for better or worse all right well we will take a little break and actually we've got a great confessional that is sex related we'll read and address it in a moment we'll be right back 
Well, uh, speaking of that confessional Andrew just mentioned, we got this a few days ago and thought that it's something that would be good to kind of address here to wrap up this week's episode, but really dive into it and into some spicier conversations in this week's installment of After Dark. But we're going to give you the confessional here on the main show. So the confessional writer says, I moved into a top floor unit in a new condo six months ago. They just held a meet and greet, and I met the man who lives below me. He asked if I vacuum. I said, I don't even own a vacuum. The (laughs) The guy turned to his neighbor and said, so her neighbor must be vacuuming. Then, as we continued talking, I started to wonder if this guy can hear me using my vibrator. (laughs) How can I continue to masturbate knowing it's probably being broadcast to my downstairs neighbor and that he's talking about it with his neighbors? (laughs) (laughs) Who's vacuuming? Where is the vacuum? Wow. (laughs) I do have some questions. Like, you don't own a vacuum? That's yeah. what I was thinking too. Do you just have like maybe a, they only have a, hardwood floors and they do Swiffer? Maybe, but maybe what you should do is you should buy a vacuum, turn it on when you're planning to use your vibrator, and then <laughs> and then you have plausible deniability. You can say yes, I was vacuuming. Yeah, for- vacuuming is really gonna get this person in the mood. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but then well, you got to listen to the vacuum while you're trying to get off, Laura. I don't know. If- yeah. I mean, get some noise canceling headphones or something. <laughs> <laughs> so in order for this poor person to masturbate, they need the vibrator, noise canceling headphones, a vacuum. <laughs> listen, listen, as we established, this is a uh, morning recording of the show, which is not normal. Um, so it's a little unhinged. I but, feel like there has to be a way to figure out how loud your vibrator is. Like, you should just, like, turn it on and see if you can hear it from outside your front door. And if you can't, then you're probably good. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So, but there, this person's in the on the top floor. I'm thinking it is an apartment, maybe an older building, maybe not, where the sound just carries through the actual floors. When I was in um, a studio apartment in West Hollywood, it was a very old building. And I was on the bottom floor, just a two-story building. It was so freaking old that nobody in the building was allowed to have an AC unit except for the damn uh, landlord. And I would hear every single freaking step that the person above me made because the floors were just so creaky and old. Seriously, I could not sleep at night some nights. I'd be going to bed, let's say 10 or 11 p.m. This guy starts walking around anytime after that. Right, 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 right. Every step. And then, of course, when the girlfriend was over, right, 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 right. <laughs> like the worst thing imaginable. So I'm kind of picturing that scenario where the vibrator. Now, where where are you using this vibrator? Is it in the bed? Because then you would assume the bed would actually be absorbing yeah, that's yeah, what a lot of that vibration. Would muffle it. Yeah. How loud? Confessional writer. Okay, here's what we do. Confessional writer. <laughs> record the vibrator. Oh, not you using God. it. Not you using it. Turn it on. <laughs> record it for us. Send it in. Maybe record it from like five feet away. And then we can determine what's going on. I'm just wondering also like how powerful is this vibrator? Is it like shaking the bed frame? Like I I just, (laughs) 
<laughs> now I'm just trying to like logically think about how it could be like carrying down. Cause I get if you're walking right. And you're on the top floor and there's somebody underneath you, but that's because you're putting pressure on the floor. Right. right. You know, I wonder how old is this vibrator? Because what I will say, <laughs> what I will say is that there are a lot of newer models that are very quiet compared to some things that were maybe coming out a few years ago. So it may also be time for an upgrade. Um, but yeah, to, to Andrew's point, if you're comfortable. Let us judge us how loud recording. your vibrator is. Yeah. And again, from like five feet away, let us. Yeah. But to be, if I had to be honest, I think that it is unlikely that your vibrator is so loud that your downstairs neighbor is noticing it. And if anything, I'm guessing that your downstairs neighbor is probably just sensitive to noise in general and maybe the kind of person to comment on any (laughs) slight noise that he might hear. So I would keep that in mind. I've had one of those before. Have y'all ever had one of those neighbors who just like... I had a neighbor oh had to mention every little noise. Not not noise related, but I had a neighbor once that was like, you shouldn't have so many of your, like all your lights on at night. It's what? like, who, are you paying my electricity bill? Like, who cares? Yeah. I okay, want Is mom. the light bleeding into your bedroom? Then who cares? Yeah. But yeah, you're right. To I, so- Some neighbors are just really picky. Yeah. One of my first apartments in California, shared wall, of course, there was like a, we would describe her as a crazy cat lady. She just lived there alone with her cats and she would complain about noise. And we were never particularly loud. I, I'm i always mindful of that type of thing. My classic story was a studio apartment in Chicago. The walls were really thin. Um, I was, imagine me podcasting like right here and there's a wall next to me. And that wall was the shared wall. And I swear, like, where the windows were, like, there was some sound leakage, leakage, some real sound, bad sound leakage. And they would start pounding on the wall while I was podcasting. And I remember I could hear this freaking neighbor clear as day. She may as well have been in the room. She she just says... (laughs) To get, she said, like, talk quieter on the phone oh or something my God. like that. And I said, I'm not on the phone. I'm podcasting. And that was the last <laughs> I heard her complain. But then, like, they would watch Game of Thrones on Sunday nights. And it was, like, late when I was trying to get to bed. Man, oh, man. I swear that TV was right in the freaking corner. So that you know how with TVs, the speakers are on the back with modern thin TVs. And that was just blasting right into my damn room. Oh, it was that was that was the worst. They would have horrible fights. And I'm I'm going to get dark for a moment. Sorry, but like the one the the I think it was the woman she would like threaten to kill herself. And I'm like, Whoa. "Should should I be calling somebody or is this like I don't I never even saw these people." It was like rough. Luckily, I was only there for four to six months, but man, they needed to break up. (laughs) Yeah. To your point, though, Andrew, I feel like the neighbors who are the most picky about that kind of thing also tend to be the ones who make the most noise themselves. Yeah. I've had a neighbor like that who would, I mean, one time she came down and was lecturing us about how to close our front door. And I was like, lady, I hear you walking around upstairs in your high heels at six o'clock in the morning when you're getting ready for work. Like, please shut the fuck up. (laughs) 
Mm. Welcome to apartment life. Yeah. That's it. That's the reality. When you live in any kind of connected dwelling, you're going to hear your neighbors sometimes. And sometimes you're going to hear, you know, the headboard uh, bumping the wall rhythmically. That is a reality (laughs) of that kind of living. And that's what we're going to talk about in After Dark today. Very nice Um, transition. Some of our spicier stories about how we've uh, handled intimacy when living in a connected dwelling. Mm -hmm. With amongst friends or maybe family. Ruh-roh. Yeah. Patreon.com slash millennial is where you can find that this week. So After Dark is actually a part of Mega Millennial, and that's the main show ad-free with After Dark attached to the end. If you're a Spotify user, tap into the show, and then you can click the Patreon banner, and you'll be able to access the Patreon audio benefits like Mega Millennial right within Spotify. If you want to support us in Apple Podcasts, you can do that. Maybe you don't want to give your credit card over to Patreon or just set up another account. Tap into the show in Apple Podcast, and you can get Mega Millennial, which is ad-free millennial with Mega Millennial at the end, right within Apple Podcasts. And whether you support us on Apple or Patreon, free trials are also available, as well as an annual subscription to save you some moolah. We've got other benefits on Patreon if you su- prefer to support us that way. We've got the executive producer tier. We got this physical gift going out to patrons uh, this year. The window has closed for that, uh, but you can bet we're already thinking about next year's physical gift. So we'll revisit this next year. Um, we got a uh, big new Patreon benefit for bays and executive producers who received the album art too, by the way. So we're looking forward to revealing that in the weeks ahead many more benefits patreon.com slash millennial all right it's time for recommendations i see here i don't see a vibrator recommendation i was kind of expecting one of us to go that way in light Mm. of the discussion or vacuum cleaner i mean those recommendations might come in after dark this week you never know (laughs) perfect never know what you might be missing out on if you're not joining us over on patreon um, I do want to recommend a piece of tech, though, although uh, to my knowledge, uh, this is not something that you would use to reach sexual gratification. Um, I want to recommend. Are you sure about that? <laughs> I, you know, I haven't tested it out yet, but I want to recommend the Yeti Nano. Uh, recommending this specifically because I'm traveling right now. This is a miniature version of um, the the Yeti by Blue Microphones. And every time I travel and I have to bring this with me, I'm always super impressed with how easy it is to uh, get around with, but also how good the quality of my audio comes through. Makes it super easy to be able to podcast on the go. And I just checked these out on Amazon. Depending on if you go for a new or a used version of this, you can get it anywhere between $50 and $90. So we hear from a lot of people who are thinking about wanting to start their first podcast and asking us questions. I think asking Andrew questions in particular about tech and what's needed to get set up. So the Yeti, uh, the Yeti Nano is, I think, a great starter microphone if you are wondering about that. And a great so, travel microphone. It's so funny you bring it up because I'm going to be having a meeting in uh, a little over a week, actually with one of our listeners who wants to start a podcast. Ooh. And they asked for a mic rec. And I did say the Yeti Nano. 
And to your point about the used ones, I actually found it for $39 on Amazon certified refurbished. So I was like, hell yeah, go for this. But let's get back to how you can use this as a sex toy. I'm holding (laughs) one up right here. I mean, it's a little girthy. It is very girthy. But it's got a unique texture in the, let's call it the head. (laughs) Might be painful, actually. Do you ever see that one EMT on TikTok that says no to things (laughs) that people want to use as sex toys? Yeah. (laughs) And then like the response is always like, but it has a flared base. So I guess that's the rule of thumb is that you should use something that has a flared base so you can fish it out after. Just make sure you're not recording while you use it. Or I mean, maybe do. I don't know. <laughs> no, <that's>... ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right. I want to recommend something that actually might make a little bit of noise, but it'll be helpful to you. I recently became really obsessed with thermal printers. So I found this thermal label printer. It's called a Rolo. And this thing, this is such a great brand. Um, These are pricey, but if you do a lot of shipping, this could be great for you. It's a wireless label printer because it's thermal. It prints super fast. It prints right to a sticker. So this way you can print your stamps right at home and just throw it on an envelope that you have and do all your mailing right at home or not having to wait in line at the post office or your, your local mailing store. This has been saving me so much time. They have such a great app for you to buy your stamps through as well. And because you're buying through them, they are a part of like this like bulk pricing, even though you're just buying a label here and there from time to time. So the prices are actually cheaper than they would be at USPS or UPS. So I have just really... I What I really love about it is that it's encouraging me to sell more on eBay because it's so easy to sell my old stuff now thanks to this printer and just buying my stamps at home. By the way, I bought a uh, Taylor Swift Eras Tour cup um, when I went to uh, see a scary movie and uh, not Taylor Swift. And then I was like, you know what? I paid seven bucks for this. I'm looking on eBay. I might be able to make a little money off of this. I sold that puppy to uh, some Swifty in Texas for 20 bucks. So I made $13 from my Taylor Swift cup. Oh, when, oh ah, you made oh $13. God, $13. I just realized that. Whoa. Wow. It's all connected always. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> I'm screaming. She always. Wow. Okay. Andrew's wow. cup was the Easter egg all along. <laughs> <laughs> I have a seasonal recommendation. I wanted to recommend picking up an electric fabric shaver because it's sweater weather in a lot of parts of the country or it will be soon. Um, I bought one of these a few years ago. They're not really expensive. You can get one for like easily under $15. And it's just really useful because it gives all of your knits a new life. It gets rid of all of the pilling that, you know, it just like comes with natural wear and tear of knit fabrics. So if you don't have one of these, you definitely should pick one up. And I find the electric ones, as long as you go slow and you're gentle and use it the way you're supposed to, they work a lot easier than the like old fashioned combs. So, yeah, definitely invest in one of those. It's true of sex toys, too. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'll stop. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, if you already use it for listening to music, why not use it 
to uh, listen to podcasts as well. I know that sounds like an ad, but uh, we're just thinking of reminding people that since a lot of you may um, also already use Spotify just for listening to music. If you have any feedback about today's show or you want to send us a great confessional, our confessionals are always so great. (laughs) You can go to millennialshow.com and you can find contact forms there. You can also email millennialshow at gmail.com. And finally, follow us on social media. We're a millennial show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and threads, and then over on TikTok. We are Millennial Pod. After Dark starts in a moment for patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.